0: Amen. It is great to be with you today. It's a joy to serve you as pastor and have the privilege of preaching God's word to you. I sure do love you and I'm looking forward to working all the way through this series together on depression and looking at the Lord's word to us about that topic. Last week I shared with you from Psalm 73, a little bit also from Hebrews, about This thing called the anchor, our worldview, the way that we interpret reality, the way we perceive it, the way we receive it, the way we process it, and how, as a result, we respond. And Asaph gives his anchor, his worldview, at the beginning of this psalm, and he says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's talking about a relationship with God. Israel was in a relationship, his chosen people. And he's also talking about the response to that relationship, which is a process of sanctification. Because God is holy, he is always making his people holy. So to those who are pure in heart, those who are being changed by this relationship, this was Asaph's anchor. Now, we're going to learn later that some of Asaph's interpretation of God's goodness was askew. It was a little bit off. And we'll address that in a couple of weeks But fundamentally, what he saw and knew to be true that he had grown up being taught and that he, as the choir director of Israel, had clung to is that God is good and he is good to us in relationship. And he is good by changing us through that relationship into the likeness of him or, as we know in the New Testament, in the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. But today we're going to turn a little bit and talk about Asaph's admission. So that's the title today, The Admission. This is where Asaph owns up to where he's at and writes it down in a form that becomes a song of Israel. Now, it's important to note the place that Asaph holds and the place that this psalm holds. Asaph is the choir director. He's the minister of music for Israel. And so... For him to make this admission is a very big deal. It would uh, kind of be like George Beverly Shea during the height of the Billy Graham crusades and campaigns coming aside and admitting that he had been in the depths of depression so bad that he had thought of renouncing everything that Billy Graham preaches. This. Time in Asaph's life is, is, a, is, a, is an important time. And so in the book of the Psalms, it's also given a prominent place. As you exit book two of the Psalms and you enter book three of the Psalms, it's the first psalm in book three. So it's given a prominence not just in the person who's going through it, Asaph, but in the position that the psalm holds in the the layout of the psalms, a book... Starting with a lesson about a minister of music, a leader who sunk so far into depression that he thought about forsaking the faith. And so this book is given prominence. This psalm is given prominence. This writer is given prominence. And so the admission of his depression is a big deal. And the way that he admits it and and the way that he fleshes it out is very specific. As we read today, we're going to see some things that he says that should get our attention. There's a stigma about depression. I don't know how long that stigma has been around. It certainly existed in the day of this psalm because such a big deal is made out of it. It is today a stigma when you talk about depression, people are afraid to admit it because they think it's a sign of of weakness. And in the American psyche, we're the people who pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And so to admit this level of weakness is not a common thing in our culture. Especially in the rugged individualistic southern and western culture of the United States. It's also categorized as a sickness. Who wants to have somebody say, hey, you've got a sickness in your head? Because of that characterization in our culture and because of the categorizing of an individual with a sickness. Very few people are open to say, willing to say how depressed they may be or may have been or may be becoming. It's also classified as a mental illness. I grew up in a place where not too far from us was a place called Milledgeville. Now, I found out that back in the day, Pineville used to have the same kind of stigma because of the location of central hospital that at one time folks used to say back in the day, are oh, you going to get sent to Pineville? Well, in my day growing up in Atlanta, the place was called Milledgeville. It was a little village where the mental hospital was. And folks would say, you're going to end up in Milledgeville. You keep talking like that. And of course, immediately, everybody's like, oh, no, I don't want to end up in Milledgeville. That's where the crazies are. That's the home of the mentally ill. And the last thing any one of us ever want to say is, you know what? I'm mentally ill. And so when we talk about depression, we are prone to hide it because of its relationship to weakness, its relationship To sickness, its relationship to mental illness, the feelings of isolation, shame, humiliation, the sense of joylessness, the distance we feel from people, the clouded perception that we have. As one person said, depression was like a dark, cold, wet blanket put over my head that I could not pull off no matter what I did. And so this admission of depression by Asaph should first bring all of us to a place of willingness that of all places the church should be the welcome place for people to reveal their weaknesses. This should be the place where every one of us can reveal The weaknesses of our heart, our mind, and our soul. And know that there will be a biblical acceptance. The reason I don't just say acceptance is, biblical acceptance is, I accept you and I tell you the truth. And so there will be in the church a biblical acceptance of those struggling with depression. Very few people are aware of the depression that the great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, experienced in his life. Very few people are aware of the depths of his depression unless they've maybe studied a biography of him or read some of the particular sermons when he addressed it. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon was considered the prince of preachers. It was nothing for him to stand before 5000 people with no microphone to preach strongly the gospel of Jesus Christ unapologetically for a solid hour. It was amazing what God did through him, the mass of literature we have from him, his sermons, his exhortations, his commentaries are a gift to the modern church. But few people know how deep into depression he went. I want to read a little bit of a biographical sketch about him to encourage you and to reveal a particular thing that he said. On the evening of October 19th, 1856, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was to commence weekly services at the Royal Surrey Gardens Music Hall. That morning he preached at New Park Chapel on Malachi 310. Prove me now. With chillingly prophetic voice, he declared, I may be called to stand where the thunderclouds brew, where the lightnings play and tempestuous winds are howling on the mountaintop. Well, then, I am born to prove the power and majesty of our God amidst dangers. He will inspire me with courage amidst toils. He will make me strong. We shall be gathered together tonight where an unprecedented mass of people will assemble. Perhaps from idle curiosity to hear God's word and the voice cries in my ears, prove me now. See what God can do just when a cloud is falling on the head of him whom God has raised up to preach to you. So this was the text of his morning sermon before he went to Surrey Hall. The text was prove me now and Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I believe That God is setting me up to live out this text. That evening, Surrey Hall, capable of holding 12,000. Think about that. Was filled to capacity with an additional 10,000 people gathered in the gardens. So here stood Spurgeon with 22,000 people in his hearing. To preach the gospel. The service began and was underway when during Spurgeon's prayer, several malicious men shouted, Fire! The galleries are giving way! In the ensuing panic, seven people were trampled to death. And 28 were critically injured. Spurgeon was never the same again. So broken was he that he wrote these words. Perhaps never a soul went so near the burning furnace of insanity and yet came away unharmed. At last he found comfort in the verse. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. If Spurgeon was acquainted with depression before, following the Surrey Hall disaster, it became a more frequent and perverse companion. In October of 1858, he had his first episode of incapacitating illness since coming to London. Having been absent from his pulpit for three Sundays, when he returned, he preached on 1 Peter 1.6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Spurgeon said, when my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep, weep by the hour like a child. And yet I knew not what I wept for. A kind friend was telling me of some poor old soul living near who was suffering very great pain. Yet she was full of joy and rejoicing. I was so distressed by the hearing of that story and felt so ashamed of myself. Virgin, from that point on, became debilitated with depression. Sometime missing months at a time from being able to teach, preach, or even function. The depression gripped him so much that he said that he began to desire death. Here, one of the strongest preachers of the gospel, one of the most gifted orators in modern history was so broken by the reality of depression that he began despairing of life. Very few people talk of these events because they don't make good discussion material. We like the stories of success. We like the victories. We like the mountaintops. We want something that will pump us up. But in reality, across all of humanity and across the church of Jesus Christ is the reality that many are plagued with painful, incessant depression. Sometimes debilitating to the point that function ceases. A friend of mine shared with me during a time of depression that she had to be clothed, bathed, turned just to survive. As a result of the kind of stigma we're a little hesitant to have good discussions about this. That's why I love this psalm. And so I want to take you into two things about Asaph and his admission that I think will be helpful to us. So let's go to number two. Asaph's admission, not just of his depression, but of the depth of his depression. He's going to describe in very stark detail how low he actually got. He does it in four places in Psalm 73. I'm going to mention those four sort of in order as they occur. Letter A, it was so deep, we find in 73 two, that it threatened the path of his faith. It's easy to read these words and miss what they're actually saying. Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but... As for me, here's his admission. As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. We're picturing here a mountain journey, walking up a hill that's difficult in a place where the footing is not very good and it starts to slip. But the meaning behind that is much bigger because this is the wording of apostasy. We go into the New Testament, Jesus used the word stumbling blocks. That's what's being spoken of here. It is not a slip and a fall, like kind of an I messed up thing. That's not what's being spoken of here. What is being referred to is the Old Testament apostasy. What he's admitting is I was this far from forsaking the faith leaving it, hitting a stumbling block so powerful that I reject God, my belief in God, my faith in God, my trust in God, my love for God. What he is saying is, I almost went the course of unbelief. And so he starts in the very beginning of his psalm with how big this issue was. It was so challenging to this godly singer to this writer of songs for Israel, so challenging to his soul that he said, you know, I almost parted from the faith. I wanted to become an apostate. And so he gives the depth of his depression with an opening comment. But he goes further. Letter B tells us, so deep that it threatened the purpose of his behavior. Look in verse 13. Now, there is a very important word in 13 that you can draw a little parallel with. If you go back to verse 1 and you go to verse 13, they both start with the same Hebrew word. And that word is a potent word. It's the word sometimes translated certainly or surely. And what it means is, is that this is a fact, incontrovertible. It can't be denied. And these two statements of verse 1 and the statement he gives in verse 13 are in opposition to each other. He says, "Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my" And what he's saying is this whole following God thing, it's useless. There is no purpose in following God. It is empty. It is vain. It is meaningless. This is how low he's sinking. He's parting from the path of following after God, and he is saying, There is no purpose behind good behavior, it's useless. Why bother? Whatever. He goes even further. Letter C. So deep that it distorted his perception of reality. There's an interesting thing that happens in this psalm. And here's what I would encourage you to do to see it. I'll be giving you maybe some visuals to go with it along the way. But in Psalm 73 verses 1 through 12 there is a Twisted perception. The psalmist is obsessed with a group of people he calls they. Listen to his obsession. Verse three, I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imagination of their heart runs right. They mock and they wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They have increased in wealth. He got warped and he became obsessed with them. Some group of people, they, them. And through these first twelve verses, there's this sick and twisted obsession where he's analyzing every aspect of the lives of people who don't serve God. And he's obsessed with it. His perception is being altered because it's all he can see. Those people who mistreat me, man, their life is smooth. They get over on everything. They get away with everything. Here I am trying to serve God and my life is difficult and I'm suffering and they are comfortable and have plenty of food and their bodies are healthy and when they die, they're not in pain, they just kind of ease off. And he's warped, distorted. If you want to do a great study, take and print out Psalm 73 and get two different highlights, get three highlighters is even better. If you get three highlighters, you can have a ball with this. Take the first highlighter and maybe a yellow one and, and, and highlight the word I or me in the whole psalm. And then highlight the word they or them and any reference to them like wicked or those kind of... And then take a blue highlighter and highlight every reference to God. You will notice a change in color As the psalm flows, you'll notice a shift from I to them and finally a shift to God. And when that shift comes, everything changes. Letter D, the fourth thing in the depth is that it was so deep that it altered his personality. You ever gotten really bummed out and somebody said, You know, you're just not yourself today? Does that ever happen? You know what I'm talking about? Well, this was digging even deeper than that. He describes himself in verse 21 and 22. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within. Now, this alludes to a life changing event that may have set this depression off. The pierced within is a word for hurting in your kidneys. Now, back in the day, that was a sort of a one of those ways of describing that deep feeling that you feel when a tragedy occurs and it just hurts you in your gut. You know what I'm talking about? You ever get that phone call and all of a sudden they tell you something and your gut just sinks? You ever see something and it's so tragic your gut just drops? There's just this sense, this deep and you know, oh, this is horrible. Well, he's describing that and it's likely that what Asaph is doing is he's saying, there was this event in my life that set this whole thing off. But listen to his description of himself. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. Asaph went from what appears to have been a sensitive, psalm-writing, song-singing, praise leader in the house of God in the time of David, in the time of Solomon, to being a hardened, and he uses the word behemoth, Now, for ages, people have tried to figure out what the behemoth was in the scriptures. You hear this description of the behemoth in the book of Job, and it sounds something like a rhinoceros or something. It's just this giant creature that can't be moved in its direction. It can't be swayed in what it wants to do. It just kind of moves ahead. He describes himself as a senseless, ignorant behemoth. Basically, he says, I I got hardened through this thing. And I became insensitive to God's leadership. I became dull and unresponsive to God, to God's people, to God's word, to God's worship. I began being hardened and dulled and I just started going off on my own like the behemoth, doing my own thing without regard for anybody else. And so it alters even his personality. So this depression that he's describing is not a mild passing thing that happens in his life. It is a deep, abiding, path-changing, purpose-removing, perception-distorting, personality-altering life event or event. And so what he's describing is serious. Now, I go into depth into this to make us aware of how serious depression really is. Folks who've never suffered depression sometimes have a very lackadaisical or even uncompassionate attitude about people who are prone to or do suffer depression sometimes one spouse is depressed and the other one because they can't understand it are always just trying to you know find some way to fix and think it's just a minor passing thing if, if you'll just if you'll just pull yourself up by your bootstraps today it's all going to be okay and failing to realize how deep this affects a person's soul the man as godly as Spurgeon saying that he thought of renouncing his faith And desired the end of his life. With the psalmist saying, I was on the verge of apostasy. I thought that this whole following God thing was purposeless. All I could see was sinners and how nice their life was. In other words, he was kind of playing in his mind the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Or uh, MTV Cribs or something. And, And he was just seeing all of the luxury of sinful people. And it warped his personality to where he became dull, insensitive, and unresponsive to God. He goes a step further, and I'm thankful for what he does next. In this admission and letting people know what he's struggling with, and in this admission of how it was altering him and how it had altered him in his life, he now is going to call three dangers that he encountered that you may encounter if you go through depression. And they're very helpful as sort of guardrails and warnings for us first. So number three, ASAP's admission of the danger of mid-depression decisions. The first one, letter A, is the danger of our conclusions. When you are in the midst of hurting, suffering, and being depressed, it's easy to come up with all kinds of conclusions that are primarily rooted in your pain and your experience. That that's where you are making your conclusions from. A very small, isolated sample of the universe, but it's your universe. A very small, isolated sample of humanity, but it's your humanity. And in the middle of the experience, look at how that works itself out. Look in verse 13. And look at how the experience is guiding the conclusion and clouding the judgment. He says in verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. In other words, he's talking out of his pain. He's talking out of his depression. He's speaking out of his experience. And he's saying, right now, all I can feel is the pain. All I can feel is the cloud, the darkness, the wet blanket over me. And, and, And I'm coming to some conclusions in the middle of it. He later sees that they're wrong. But while he's experiencing them, they seem right. My brothers and sisters, my dear friends who are here today that don't know the Lord Jesus, you are going to go through some places in your life. They may be depression. They may be anxiety. They may just be plain pain. And there is a danger that right in the middle of it, you begin to make some very big conclusions about God and life and purpose. And they may be very distorted and wrong. In fact, they likely will be. And so the first warning that he gives us is the danger of where he was in the middle of his depression. And he says, I came to a conclusion it was wrong. That's what the psalm is about. It's about his wrong conclusions. But there's something beyond that. Asaph understood something about our Humanity and our relationships. That was very important. Letter B. The danger of our counsel. In the middle of depression, there is an input and an outflow. (laughs) There is counsel that we take in and there's counsel that we give out. In other words... While you're depressed, you're still going on about life. You're still being a spouse and a parent. You're still being a child relating to parents. You're still being a worker or a college student or a high school or junior high student. You're still relating with people, with friends. And two things are happening in that. One is that there is an inflow of counsel. And two is that there is an outflow of counsel you are receiving counsel in the middle of it, and you are giving counsel, let me warn you about both. When you feel depressed and you begin coming to some wrong conclusions, you may make the grave error of drawing to yourself companions who have already come to those wrong conclusions, and you may get them to feed your pain to feed your emotions because you don't want to be confronted with truth. You don't want to have to wrestle with it. You just want to sour in the place that you're at and you don't want to be disturbed because you hurt and because any movement makes you feel more uncomfortable and so you may draw to yourself counselors who already disbelieve the things of God. And you may relate closely with them because they feel comforting to you because you agree with them in your pain. Before your pain, you would have never agreed with them. But right now you agree and so you may draw them. Second, look in verse 15 at the danger. Asaph knew that he was still influencing people in the middle of his experience he knew just like you are as a mom as a wife as a dad as a husband as a child as a friend as a church leader you are influencing people as a neighbor as a coworker you are influencing people and asaph said something so profound in verse 15 if i had said i will speak thus behold i should have betrayed The generation of thy children. What's he saying? Asaph said, if I would have taken my conclusions as a man of influence and started to preach my wrong conclusions, I would have betrayed people that were under my influence. I would have misled them. I would have misguided. I would have misdirected them. I would have led them astray. And so Asaph says, whoa. Guys and gals, as he writes this, he says, wait a minute. When you're in the middle of all that pain, time out. Watch out for what you're going to take in. And watch out for what you're going to spew out. Watch out for what comes out of the fountain of your heart when you're hurting. You may lead someone astray. And so Asaph was very careful about the danger of the conclusions and the danger of the counsel. But finally, he was careful in admitting the danger of his choices. Here's what I have seen happen in the lives of many depressed people. Here's what's tempted me when I've been depressed. And that is the belief that if I can change my situation, I can be happy again. That if I can change my environment, I will be happy again. Now, the depth of these choices are very important. Look in verse 17. All this is going on, and Asaph makes a choice. Verse 17, and we're going to look into detail in this in the coming weeks until I came into the sanctuary of God. This was a determined, willful choice. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of his anxiety, in the midst of his warped perception, he made a willful choice that he knew there was just one place, one person who really knew the answer. And it was God. Sometimes when we get into depression, We become tempted to do sinful things. I believe this is where so much addiction comes in. I believe that a great number of our addictions are simply self-medicating the reality that we're struggling with and trying to escape it. Trying to manage it. Thinking if I could just... If I could just change this outside or if I could take something that would just make me feel different on the inside and so I'll drink or I'll, I'll, I'll take these medicines. I'm not talking about doctor-recommended things. I'm talking about illicit things. And I believe that it is in these places that Satan throws some of the greatest temptations for immorality, for the breakdown of the family, For the breakdown of society. Because Satan will always come in and say, I have a way for you to feel better. But I promise you, my friend or my brother or my sister, Satan is never going to offer you anything good. It will always be to your detriment. It will seem like the answer. It will seem like the fix. He understood that in the midst of these times of depression that there are choices we make that are within the realm of our capabilities and that those choices have consequences and that we have to be very, very careful how we navigate that as churches and as individuals. Because oftentimes the choices that we make are not dealing with the fundamental issue, but the symptoms. And because the symptoms hurt so much, we just want relief. And so we deal symptomatically rather than fundamentally. And so I want to close with sort of a how does the gospel come into this? If we are a people prone to depression and if the depth of our depression is such that we are potentially going to go off the path of belief, if we are fundamentally affected at the level of our purpose in life, and if our perceptions can be warped and our personalities can be changed, if the danger is such that the depth will make us have wrong conclusions and give wrong counsel or seek wrong counsel and even make us prone to bad choices, what do we do? And we have six more weeks to flesh some of that out, but I want to give you a simple and short answer that the psalmist knew. And it's why he wrote verse 17. In verse 17 he says, Until I came to the sanctuary of God. Jesus in Matthew 11, 28 and 29 says something so profound. He says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. How can Jesus say that? He can say it because in Isaiah 53 it says, He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He can say it because in the book of Hebrews it says that he was made like us in everything that he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin so that he can sympathize with those who are so tempted Jesus was able in the garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26:38 to say my soul is troubled to the point of death. And He turned to His disciples and said, Would you keep watch with Me? Jesus knows personally and intimately the depth of everything you're going through. And He simply says, Come unto Me. He carried all of those burdens and all of those sicknesses and all those sorrows to the cross. He made atonement for them. And He provided a way for you to be delivered ultimately and perfectly through them, even if you can't feel that deliverance today. Jesus says, come. And so I want to ask you to bow with me as we close. I want to invite you in the midst of your feelings whatever has pierced you in your gut, whatever has brought you to that place of despair, whatever it is that repetitively assaults you and tempts you to come back to the things of the world that never satisfy. Whatever that is, I'm inviting you today to do as Asaph did. To bring yourself and all your brokenness to the sanctuary of God to Christ himself who is God in the flesh and to know that he understands every facet of what you feel every weakness every desire he understands and he is so patiently lovingly waiting Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Troubled soul. Anxious heart. Depressed spirit. Come to Jesus. He will accompany you. Even when He does not lift all of the pain. He will accompany you even when He does not take away all the anxiety. He will accompany you even when He doesn't remove the cloud of darkness. He will be there. And in the depths of what you're going through, Christ beckons you, come, the cross, He has settled your eternal hope. At the resurrection promised, your life resurrected in heaven. And I invite you to Jesus today. Take everything to Him. Trust Him. He will never leave you, nor will He forsake.